You guys can all be seated. It's a joy to be with you guys on the last Sunday of Advent. Okay, in the 19th century, uh, there's an author named Sarah Dudley, and she said, the waiting time, my brother, is the hardest time of all. And how true are those words? Waiting is hard. Waiting for the mundane and the magnificent both have their struggles. I mean, the reality is we struggle waiting for a red light to turn green. I mean, I always map out the quickest way I can get from point A to point B in Corvallis, thinking what lights are going to be the longest? What's going to be the shortest? How can I navigate through just to skip and maybe save 30 seconds? We struggle actually going the speed limit. It's more of an idea than it is a law. We struggle waiting for somebody to respond to our text message. We say, they have their red receipt on. I, I saw they read it. I don't know why they haven't responded yet. We struggle with our commercials and waiting for them to be done. That's why there was things like TiVo and we have direct TV. We can pause, we can fast forward, we can just skip commercials all together. Waiting is hard. I mean, think about if you have Amazon and you're like, I don't have Prime. I don't even know if I want to buy anything because I have to wait more than two days to get that shipping to my house. See, the difficulty is magnified, though, when what we are waiting for is heightened in significance. The waiting to find out if you passed your final exam to see whether or not you graduated. That waiting of nine months as a baby is created in your stomach. The waiting to see if you got that job you've been, you've been trying to find out about, or that waiting to see if that offer on that house actually went through. Waiting is hard. See, one of the toughest periods of waiting in my life was actually the time of engagement with Anna. I know some people love to be engaged. I absolutely hated it. I was like, well, we're engaged. Why can't we just get married, right? But you know, you got to have that buffer period and planning a wedding. Um, And so ours is only six months. But I remember each day of that six months, I was like, can it be done already? And then on top of that, I had 10 weeks that I was in Boston doing stuff with the branch. And I loved Boston, but at the same time, I hated Boston because I was like, can these 10 weeks just be done so that we can finally get to my wedding? Waiting is hard. And yet when that wedding day finally arrived for me at the middle of August, when my waiting was up, that was so hard and so long, that waiting no longer really bore significance. Because at that moment, I was able to say, well, I would do that waiting all over again if I knew that, again, I would be able to marry my wife, marry my best friend. You see, for what I'd been waiting for, it finally arrived, and all the other things were cast aside as I was able to stand before Anna. See, the season of Advent is a season of expectant waiting. It's the four weeks we set aside as we intentionally reflect on the coming of Christ, the day that we celebrate of Christmas. But it's also the long-desired waiting for the second coming. Of Christ. We live in this tension of the now and not yet. The arrived and the still awaiting arrival of Christ's second coming. 
In today's story, we highlight two people that are also waiting. Yet we see in this story that their waiting comes to a close. And that's through the characters of Simeon and Anna. And we see that ultimately what they are waiting for is what we as followers of Jesus get to rejoice in. That Jesus the Christ has come to comfort and redeem his people. So let's set the scene of the story. You see, 40 days have gone by since Jesus was born. 40 days is the allotted time that Mary had to stay away from things that were considered holy because she was unclean from giving birth. And so our story picks up with Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple to be presented. This was the custom of the day that the first male that was born in a household was to be presented to God, was to be brought to the temple and placed before God. It really, it follows the legacy of Exodus 13. Where in that, in that chapter, Moses says, For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. For all the firstborns of my son I shall redeem. And so really this, this act of consecrating your firstborn is looking back to that Exodus story. It's a looking back and praising God for the deliverance. It's a thanksgiving to God for what he has done for the people of Israel. And so at the temple, Mary and Joseph were consecrating Jesus to the Lord. And it speaks of two ceremonies. And the second ceremony would have been for, for Joseph and Mary. Because again, as I said, Mary, because of giving birth, was considered unclean. And so the second ceremony they did was a purification ceremony. It was a sacrifice to cleanse both Mary and Joseph of the dirty aspect, the unclean aspect of giving birth, just following from Leviticus 12. And so it's while Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are performing these ceremonies that we get to interact with our two individuals, these two characters in the story. And I think prior to diving into what they say and do, which will take the bulk of our time, it's important to see, okay, who are these characters? Why are they in the Bible at all? And, and what is this story even about? You see, the reality is little is actually known about Simeon and Anna. In some sense, they kind of seem like one-hit wonders in the Bible because they're in this story and they're nowhere else in the Scripture. Yet they hold such significance and joy to the Christian as we see why they are here. So who are these characters? And why are they in the scripture? First we see with Simeon. Simeon's described as righteous and devout. Righteous meaning he behaved well towards others. And he was a respectable man who honored others. He was, he was looked up to as a, as a good man. And we're also told that he's devout, which means he was careful about his religious duties. We don't actually know, it does not say if he's a priest or not, but he was very devout like a priest would have been to honor the law of Moses. And we also see huge significance in the fact in verse 25 that it says the spirit was upon him. You see, the spirit of God was with Simeon continually. And it's significant because this time in history, the spirit of God 
resided and rested on a few individual people. This isn't a post-Pentecost spirit that all believers have the Spirit of God, but rather this is a specific, unique, special endowment that Simeon has the Spirit. And we also see that this, this unique endowment also leads to a unique relationship. Because we see in this text that Simeon's told that he will actually not die until he sees the Messiah. He sees the Lord's Christ. And then there's Anna that we get at the end of our passage. Anna's name meaning grace, and she was a prophetess. And this is striking and profound because the Gospels kind of bring to a close these 400-ish years of silence from God where people have been waiting just to hear the voice. And so the fact that she is a prophetess, the one that speaks the words of God, should ring out that what she's doing, what she has to say, is significant. And what's significant on top of that is that, that God chooses to use a prophetess, where in the Talmud, which is kind of the, the specific teachings and primary source of religious law for the Jews, they only had seven prophetesses in all of history. And Anna is one of them. The words she says are significant. And we're told Anna's, Anna's a widow. She was married for seven years and then has been a widow ever since, dedicating herself to the Lord, dedicating herself to working in the temple. Different translations either have it that she's 84 years old or she was a widow or is a widow for 84 years. Regardless, you're thinking she's been a widow for decades and throughout that time, she spends it at the temple. She was a devout and God-fearing woman. In verse 37, it says she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She practically lived at the temple praising God. This fasting and prayer points to a disciplined life outside of just the corporate worship gatherings. This obviously reveals a very close and intimate relationship with God. And we're told that both of these characters, not just in their godliness, but in other ways, they have something significant in common. You see, they have both been waiting. Simeon in verse 25, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And Anna, verse 38, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They're both waiting for God to break into the world and to console and redeem his people. And we get to see how that comes to fruition in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So what are they waiting for? First, we see they're waiting for consolation. They're waiting for comfort. You see, Simeon was waiting for Israel to be comforted. And Luke's comment, one of the commentators of Luke, Leon Morris, he said the consolation of Israel for which he, that is Simeon, looked for is another name for the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited King. You see, this consolation speaks of a longing for healing. Speaks of restoration from past losses and seeing the promises come to fruition. This is the very soul yearning of the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus arrives at the temple with his parents to perform these various ceremonies, 
Simeon, being full of the Spirit, recognizes there's something different about that little boy. You see, this child in my arms is the one we've been waiting for. The wait is over, for the comfort has arrived. And Simeon responds by blessing God and praising God. And we see that in verses 29 through 32, where he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The now, that second word is super important because in that Simeon's recognizing the significance of this moment of this child that he's holding. He's recognizing that God is true to his word and this babe in his arms is the one that he's been waiting for. He's like, Lord, I can die a content and happy man in this moment because you have blessed me with seeing your salvation. See, God's salvation came in the form of a child. And Simeon makes it clear, though, that this salvation is not just simply for Israel. It's not just for one nation. No, it's a salvation for all. For he says, salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then he begins to kind of spell that out as he speaks of both the Gentiles and of Israel. He's speaking of all peoples because, again, for a, for a Jew, they would recognize you're either Jewish or you're not. That's the two categories. And so he shows there's a salvation that is coming, that is here to encompass all people. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus is the light. And what does the light do? Light illuminates. It reveals things that were once unseen in the darkness. It gives you clarity of the path to walk. This blessing actually flows out of the words of Isaiah 42, where God speaks of his chosen servant. God is speaking of Jesus through these prophecies, and he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. See, the light frees you from darkness. For where there is light, darkness perishes. And what is this light? This light is a revelation. And this revelation is salvation. This revelation is that the Messiah has come, the King has been born, and he is here to reign. And not just reign over Israel, but reign over all the nations of the earth. And he comes to be a light, but he also comes for the glory of the people of Israel. You see, Israel and the glory of God are common themes within the Old Testament. As God manifests himself to his people, we constantly hear and see and experience the glory of God being presented to Israel in the forms of a cloud, in the form of a temple, in the form of the tabernacle. 
And yet Simeon speaks of a day that has arrived in which Israel will see the glory of God on full display. See, for the, for the glory of God will no longer be in a tabernacle. But as John in his first chapter of his gospel says, and, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus came to be a light, to reveal himself, to reveal God to all people. And this, my friends, is, is the comfort, is the consolation that he brings. This is comforting news for all people. See, for through this revelation of God, salvation is presented through his son to bring us comfort. I mean, think of the famous, famous words in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then continuing to verse 17. For he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's not a condemnation, but it's a, it's a comforting call. It's a comforting coming. You see, salvation through Christ is the most comforting thing in the world. Salvation through Christ is the most comforting thing in the world. For the unsteady and unknowing elements of life that we experience daily, weekly, yearly, our salvation in Christ stands secure. I love the words of Samuel Rutherford. He says, Believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ. And it is not your rock which ebbs and flows but your sea. So when the sea of life is tumultuous and you feel like you can barely get your head above water, when you don't know if your needs are going to be met, you can look to the rock that is your comfort of salvation. Cling to the one that does not ebb and flow in life circumstances. Christ is our constant comfort. He is faithful to his word, He's faithful to his people. So maybe you're here this morning and, and actually dread the Christmas season. For it's not full of joy, but it's actually full of broken family and, and difficult conversations. Maybe it's full of no family. Maybe the season is hard because you don't have the finances to actually be able to bless your kids or bless other people in your community like you would like to. Maybe you're here this morning and just dissatisfied with life. The life you're living and the circumstances you're experiencing, you would have never chosen for yourself if you had the opportunity. But you see, in the, in the midst of all this, as a follower of Christ, we need to realize that our name is written in the book of life. God knows your name and you are his. Like, just put that in perspective 
for the ebbs and flows and the difficulties of the life we live. Yet the God of the universe knows you and has written your name in the book of life, in the book of heaven. I mean, I think of this example that Jesus even gives as he's interacting with his disciples and he sends them out on this missionary journey. And they go and they do amazing things of proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons and healing people. And they come back and they're talking to Jesus and, and they're saying, Jesus, look at all the stuff we did. We did all stuff in your name. And Jesus is like, hey, that's awesome. That's amazing. But instead, take joy in the fact that your names are written in the book of heaven. Like that's the reality. That's what we get to rely on and sit in. That is our comfort. That even in the great things we do for God or the terrible things we do that have nothing to do with God, as far as of Jesus, our name is written in his book. See, this is great news. This is news that literally changes our lives. See, for the resurrection is real, my friends. The resurrection is real. Jesus said to me, all who, Jesus said, all who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He will give you the comfort you need. And so don't let this comforter pass you by. See, as followers of Jesus, as, as post-Pentecost Christians, we actually have the Spirit of God within us. It's not a rarity like it was with Simeon, but we as followers have the Spirit. And the beauty is the Spirit, another name for him, is actually the Comforter. That is who we have residing within us. God is our comfort. So when our days are up and we stand before our Maker, which you all will, he will proclaim you as his own and welcome you with open arms. Like, how amazing is that reality? And I was, I was struck by this very truth this week. I'm just engaging with, with some of the members of our church, of, of seeing God as comforter. Um, this week, Zach and, and Sam Lundy uh, had some, a really hard week, a really rough week. Um, as earlier this week, Zach found out that his dad had some kind of major health complications. They hadn't heard from him for a while, and about five days had gone by before he was discovered at his house. So he's majorly dehydrated, malnourished, suffering from some kind of significant neurological problems. He was rushed to the hospital and then transferred to ICU, where they had to do an emergency open-heart surgery to bring healing to him. And he's, he was lucid enough to make decisions They kind of head into surgery, knowing that there's a reality that as he heads into a surgery where they literally open up your body to work on your heart, he might not actually make it. Yet Larry, being a strong and devout follower of Christ, faithful to the Lord, when the chaplain came in and, and spoke with him and said, hey, Larry, how can I, how can I pray for you? Larry's words were simple said, pray that God's will be done. You see, this is the comfort that God brings to his people. That the grand scheme is you're looking open heart surgery in the face. With salvation in the Lord, you can say, God's will be done, for he is my comforter. For he is the one that is faithful. I mean, God says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And because of this, we can confidently say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yet on top of that amazing story of God as comforter, we also see in the smaller details of life as well, as Sam got back to her house, um, she had a package there from her mom. Uh, just a little Christmas package. And it was sent prior to any of this understanding of what was going on with Larry and this lack of health. And so she got the package, and in the package, you know, it was a bunch of different goodies. But in there was also a little half sheet of five different verses that she just like, just God put on my heart. And so I decided to jot them down on the sheet and send them to you. And each one of those verses focus on the fact that Jesus is the water of life. He is the one that goes to your dehydrated soul and fills you abundantly. And one of those verses is Revelation 7, 16, and 17, and it says, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, God is our comforter. He is the good father who loves his children. And we ultimately see that God comforts us through his son, through salvation. Jesus is our comfort because he is our redeemer. And we see that our redemption and salvation comes with a price a really heavy price. And we see this as we look at redemption in verses 34 and 35. Simeon directs his attention from God to Mary and Joseph, and he speaks prophetically of what is to happen to this babe that he's holding. His words speak the pathway of redemption. His words speak of of what Anna proudly and boldly proclaims in verse 38 of this section. See, redemption speaks of our need to be released from the powers that hold us in bondage. Simeon's prophecy says that because of this child, many will fall and rise in Israel. Many in Israel will reject Jesus. See, they will reject the very Messiah God brought to his people. Jesus will be scoffed, spoken against, and rejected by many. He will be a stumbling block for many. The beauty is the Apostle Paul actually says in Romans that it's through this Israelite stumbling that the Gentiles, which makes up the overwhelming majority of us in this room, could experience salvation, could see the light. And the folly of man actually led to the glorification of God. And Jesus would be opposed. The very people who were waiting for the Messiah to arrive were the very people who crucified. The very Messiah they were waiting for. For the king of the world was not given a crown of rubies and jewels, but he was given a crown of thorns. Instead of a scepter to hold, he was lashed. Purple robes stripped off his body. Instead of a throne to sit upon, a tree he was nailed to. 
This was the price of redemption. This is the price of our comfort. Redemption comes through Christ and Christ alone, and it comes through his blood spilled for us. Christ's path to the throne was one of suffering and heartache. Through his suffering, death, and resurrection, he made his people his own. His kingdom is eternal, and his people are eternal with him. For those that die with Christ also rise with Christ. Yeah, verses 34 and 35 reveal that in this matter, we ultimately cannot be neutral. When we see Christ suffer, our reaction actually shows which side we stand on. As verse 35 says, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You see, our response to the gospel reveals the thoughts of our hearts. Reveals whether or not we think we actually need to be redeemed. Whether we realize we are in the dark and need a great light. Whether we realize the long-awaited Messiah has at last arrived. See, the reality is redemption is only comforting for those who believe they need to be redeemed. Those that think their redemption is unnecessary find no comfort or joy in the coming of Christ. For them, this Christmas season is just about gifts that they can give and gifts that they can receive. Yet it has nothing to do with Jesus and what he bought for them. So if you're here this morning and, and, and don't know Jesus, if you don't think Christmas is significant besides getting presents, I, I plead with you to take heart to these words. Take heart to what this passage is actually about. For there will be a reckoning one day where we will all stand to meet our maker. And he will either be our comfort and our redeemer or our judge, jury, and executioner. So call on the name of Jesus. Cling to the fact that you need a savior and his name is Jesus. He is good and he is true. His word says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The Lord's Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come to comfort and save his people, you. And for the Christian, I urge you this week to spend time reflecting on the very heart of this passage as well, that Christ is our comforter. He is our salvation. Like, this is amazing news. The best gift that we can ever receive. So the question I ask is, what, what are we waiting for? Embrace this gift and share it with others. You see, the gift of Christ is not a gift that we hoard, but it's a gift that we actually want others to experience with us. Embrace the comfort of Christ. Embrace the fact that you have been redeemed and share it. Share it with all that will hear. 
I mean, last week we spoke about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. We now have peace with God, and this vertical peace has given us this horizontal peace with humanity. John 14 says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. So may we be people that that go and extend that peace to others. A peace of God that comes in the form of comfort and salvation. We look at Anna the prophetess and see this appropriate response. In verse 38, she gives thanks to God and speaks of Jesus to all who are waiting. And the reality is Anna was rejoicing at the coming of this baby. Yet she has no idea actually how how this redemption would come about in this 40-day-old child. She doesn't know what his life would look like when he grew up. And yet she rejoiced and told all who had ears to hear of this redemption because Jesus said this, God said this child would be the redemption of his people. And yet we live on the other side of the resurrection. We know Jesus' life. We know what he did to redeem his people. We know that story by heart. So may that lead us to worship and thank him this very week. Praise God for the gift of life, of being redeemed and continually comforted by him and through him. And hopefully this leads to a boldness and a desire to share Christ with others this season. As we we open gifts, as we share meals with people, as we potentially have time off from work, may may we take advantage of this season to share what Christmas is actually about. We have comfort and salvation through our King, Jesus Christ. So the question is, what are we waiting for? C.S. Lewis said, The glory of God, and as our only means of glorifying Him, the salvation of human souls, is the real business of life. Let us not be people that wait, but rather people that pick up the torch and bring the light of the world to all the dark places of the world. The wait is over. The king has come and the king reigns. Advent is often a season of reflection for me as I look back over this year. As I look back and see God's faithfulness and what he's done for me, my family, and those I interact with regularly. It's also a season in which I spend time trying to focus on who God is and what he has done for me. Um, and this year, I, I turned my contemplations uh, into something I don't do often. I turned my contemplations into a poem. Um, and I thought I would, I would end our time together just reflecting on, really my year, reflecting on this Advent season uh, through a reading of a poem. Um, and then we'll close in prayer. Um, if you read the newsletters, you would have seen this. If not, embrace it. Uh, the poem is called Long Live the King. In Bethlehem, a child born, angels proclaim with voice and horn, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, the kingdom of heaven now begin. Shepherds watching over flocks by night, overcome by such a marvelous sight. In swaddling clothes, a manger he lay, the son of God, his will to obey. In haste, the shepherds told whom they knew, the prophecies have indeed come true. Magi came from afar, following the path of a star. 
bearing gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold, welcoming the king of the world. In him the fullness of God and man dwell, as death's grip on life fell. Jesus Christ, his name we proclaim, he is the one to take away our shame. The throne of David he will reclaim, offering healing to the lame. The blind receive sight, for the Son of God is light. A perfect life, the law fulfilled, a new people of God he did build. Jesus came to bring salvation to men, a righteous substitute for their sin. For the blood of bulls and rams not suffice, Jesus, the Lamb of God, be his device. Son of God, a a crown of thorns he is mocked, on death's door he knocked. With nails in his hands and feet, the redemption of man soon complete. Crucified on a cursed tree, he bought salvation for you and me. The grave could not hold as Jesus foretold. It is finished, he said, as Jesus rose from the dead. For a rebellious people he died, making his people into his bride. The body of Christ we become, beating the kingdom's drum. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Child of God, we always remain. Repent and believe is what Jesus said, and you, dear Christian, will rise from the dead. All glory, honor, and praise he deserve. To do his will, we do serve. Remember in this Advent season that our Lord Jesus is the real reason. The Christians aim to proclaim his fame, for it is his birthday we celebrate as we humbly await. For Christ will return to sit on his throne, a new heaven and earth we are shown. Merry Christmas becomes our refrain, for our eternal King does reign. Amen and amen, let the praises begin. With one voice we sing, long live the King. Let's pray.